In a way, today is uh, kind of sad in that uh, this is the end of this uh, series on the letters to the church. I've really personally enjoyed it. It's been, it was an enriching time for me preparing and going through this. And there are always things that God illuminates uh, in your life. And the process of the exegesis of scripture or biblical hermeneutics, uh, theologically speaking, or the study of God's word, trying to you know, uh, work through and ascertain what is it saying uh, what is this passage actually saying? We sometimes can, I guess, forget that as we read through Scripture, um, you know, in, in the word studies and all the other kinds of things that I might do as a pastor to go back to original language and try to find out what's going on. Uh, one of the refreshing things about this series for me personally was the Spirit enlightenment, the Holy Spirit enlightenment, as, as we just read through the Word, just, just as you might do in your daily devotions. And, and, and the Holy Spirit just kind of pops something out of the, the midst, a little nugget of truth that pops out of a, a passage of Scripture that suddenly becomes alive to you, something that maybe you had read before and you had uh, even heard before read or in a Scripture passage or whatever. And then suddenly in that moment that you're reading that passage, it comes alive. And that was my experience as we went through these letters to the church. And, and uh, it, was, it was refreshing to me that way, that it just was the Holy Spirit a lot of times illuminating things to me and bringing them to life. As our person who's delivering the letters, uh, the emissary who's carrying these letters, arrives at the last church and... I want to read through this passage with you again, found in uh, Revelation chapter 3, and it begins at verse 14, and do some reminders as we go through. Uh, it opens by saying to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, and you might remember that we uh, ascertained that the angel was not literally an angel or a, an angelic being that's over uh, seeing that particular church or watching over it carefully, obviously. God is always watching over our lives and uh, protecting us, but this was uh, meant uh, in a literal fashion. It's a reference to the pastor or the leader, the spiritual leader of that church, to the angel at the church of Laodicea or the pastor that's there. These are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, poor, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may become rich and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on the throne. Whoever has ears to hear, 
repetitive statement to all these letters, closing them out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear, or let them hear, what the Spirit says to the churches. What's going on here at the church at Laodicea, referred to as lukewarm, and we can understand that in layman's terms as the average church. This was the average church. John Maxwell gave one of the best definitions that I've ever heard for the word average, and I've used it. We used it with our kids you know, growing up. We, we told them, you know, came home with their report cards, and they had average on their report cards. And I'll tell a story about me in a minute. We used uh, what John Maxwell says here to help them understand what average means. John Maxwell says that average is the best of the worst and the worst of the best. <laughs> it's the best of the worst and the worst of the best. Average makes a deal with apathy. An unwritten agreement to never do more than is absolutely necessary. In preparation for this message, I was thinking back to, I guess, the one year in my um, school grade, kindergarten through 12th grade, that uh, really I struggled. And I, I can't point back as to why, but it was fifth grade, and I was really struggling in fifth grade. And I don't know whether it was a teacher, wasn't really understanding as much as I should. I, I do think there was, an, there was an issue that took place in third and fourth grade where we lost a, a teacher, had substitute teachers, may not have learned some of the things I needed to learn. At any rate, struggling. And so I received uh, my first report card there, and it had three C's, one A, and a B. And I looked at it quickly, and I tucked it away. You know, I was ashamed. I knew what was going to happen when I got home with C's. That was unacceptable in my household. And I had a friend who was uh, just constantly badgering me. He wanted to see the report card. He wanted to see my report card. And I didn't want to show him, and for obvious reasons, you know, I was ashamed. And he's like, come on, you know. So finally, I showed him my report card. And, uh, you know, he's, he, he's uh, looking at it, he goes, what, what are you so upset about? And he goes, I got all C's and one D. And it was an epiphany for me at 10 years old to realize that there was a home in this world that accepted C's. And I begged of him, are your parents consider adoption? Would they bring me into their household so that I don't have to go home to my parents and show them this ugly report card? I could just go home with you and, I could, and they would rejoice because they would see an A and they would see a couple of Bs and they would be so excited and we would celebrate all day long uh, the Cs on my report card. It was a real enlightening moment for me to understand that there was a place where Cs were okay, where Cs were acceptable. I knew my parents were not going to be happy when I got home with that grade. And I also knew something early on that it, when I arrived at a place like that where I was functioning average, that it often would require me to look a little inside and be honest with myself about what was going on. I wasn't studying enough, wasn't caring enough about what was going on. And there's going to have to be some action going forward. I needed to go home. Uh, even a 10 years old understanding, I needed to go home with a plan. Uh, to tell my parents next semester was going to look different than this semester because I had looked inside and recognized that I wasn't performing, uh, I wasn't doing homework, I wasn't turning in things as I should, and I suddenly w certainly wasn't spending the kind of time I needed to on my studies. 
And I've found in my life that in the absence of an honest appraisal, we become spiritually at risk. And this is what was happening in the church of Laodicea. Scholars call it the Laodicean problem. He said, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. A condition that scholars refer to as the Laodicean problem. And what was the, the Laodicean problem? It was that they were spiritually bankrupt, but not just that. They were spiritually bankrupt, but they were in such denial about it. They were telling people they were rich. They were wealthy. They didn't really need anything. And that all was taken care of. And, and they were neglecting the fact that when we come together like this on Sabbaths, that's why we come together, is to kind of do an internal appraisal about where we are and what's going on in our lives. It's an opportunity for us to open up an honest worship with God and say, God, you know, show me things that are not where they should be. God, I want to do an honest appraisal in my life, and I want you to be empowered to do a work inside of me that will transform me and make me who you want me to be. A place, a time, a community of faith that we come together and we reflect together. We're challenged by God. We're challenged by spiritual correction. We are challenged by one another in our walk with God. It's why when we're missing for a while, someone might say, hey, I missed you. You know, where, where have you been or what's going on? It's an accountability circle that's created. And that's why it's important for us to come together and to open up in our worship to God into this internal inspection of what's really going on inside of us. And the passage opens up with the angel, the church of Laodicea, the uh, writing to the pastor and telling him, I want to enlighten you. Uh, about what I see happening in church, in your church. Now, Laodicea was a, a wealthy city, perhaps the wealthiest in Phrygia. It, it was wealthy, um, and, and it, uh, it, it was so uh, wealthy that it's, it was reported in the annals of, of the Roman uh, historian, uh, Tacitus. He tells the story about what happened in a devastating earthquake in Laodicea, that they had just, uh, th there was such calamity and such financial ruin. And, and he writes about how Laodicea didn't even reach out to the Roman government or didn't wait for them to bring funds to help rebuild, that they rebuilt themselves. That's how wealthy the city was. And, and it's recorded in the annals of, of uh, Roman history. Tacitus wrote, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. It was a city that was known for its monetary success, its banking centers, its linen and wool industry. It was a, a, a city where there was a medical school and it, and it had some medical discoveries. And one of them, which is interesting, the language in the passage, one of the, the, the great uh, medical discoveries was a salve that people would use on their eyes that would help them bring down swelling, would bring uh, healing in particular situations to, to the eye over time as the salve was applied. And it was a, a, a marvelous discovery. And so this was a, a, an epicenter of a place that had a lot of great things going on uh, economically. It had wealth, the banking centers, it had trade, it had industry, it had people could go there and find jobs. It was low unemployment and, and it was also a place of medical discovery and a place of training for uh, doctors. And, and so it really was a, a, a place 
that people aspired to go or to be around. And he writes uh, this opening line as he's speaking to the church there. He says, these are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler over God's creation. Now God's Amen means that he is faithful. And thus it is, and always so will it be that whereas man's amen will be an assent to God to, to say, let, you know, so let it be, or I agree, and we say amen in church. When Jesus is referred to as the amen, we use uh, throughout the passage of scripture, amen is used to, at the end of the law, to affirm that, the, yes, this is the law, this should be kept, this is, we are, we are in agreement about that, so let it be this way. But d- when, when Jesus is called the amen, it is because through him the purposes of God were and are established. The passage out of 2 Corinthians 1 and 20 reminds us of that. For no matter how many promises God has made, They are all yes, that same word for amen, in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. In Revelation 3.14, Jesus is the amen because he is the faithful and the true witness. He who declares the law gives testimony concerning all of the offenses against it, and he executes sentence against the offenders. He is the final word. He's the amen. And then he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. To a wealthy place, to a wealthy environment, to people who were making really good money, to a place where the tithe was up and and it looked great for the church because everyone was working and participating in in, uh, giving. And he says to them, I counsel you to buy gold refined by fire. So you can become rich. He's saying you think you're rich. You're poor. You're naked. You're blind. You can buy, uh, you can become rich and, and you can buy white clothes to wear so that you can cover the shameful nakedness and salve, remember the salve, to put on your eyes so that you can actually see. Internal inspection with the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit gives us a a sincere, honest look inside. We we have a a tendency to look at the pretense. We have a tendency to measure good uh, deeds that we've done against bad deeds and to uh, focus more on, well, I'm better, uh, I'm, I'm good more than I'm bad. But with the Holy Spirit illuminating our eyes, He shows us at times what was, in, what was the seed of the bad that was taking place in us, the root of evil that's going on, left unchecked how it will devour our lives. The darkness will climb over and there will be a day that the deeds of bad outweigh the deeds of good. There will be a day where we will be a prisoner to our sin and not just a participant in a sinful act. The church that considered themselves wealthy God challenges them to buy gold that is refined by fire. In other words, he's saying to them, you are bankrupt in the eternal. You're bankrupt in love. Your love is always connected to receiving love from someone. Your love is always self-centered. Your love is 
phileo love, brotherly love, your love is, is never agape love, sacrificial kind of love. You're bankrupt in that. Your love is short-lived, and that's why you're impatient with one another. You are bankrupt in forgiveness. You're holding on and harboring things that have happened to you and, and holding people in, in unforgiveness that you should let go and release. You are bankrupt in grace. You're bankrupt in hope. You're bankrupt in everything that lives beyond this moment. And then he says to them these poignant words, which every parent fully understands, right? Every parent understands what I'm about to read. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. You have had it said to you as a child growing up in your household, and you have said it if you're a parent, I'm going to discipline you because I love you. <laughs> right? If I didn't care about you, if I didn't love you, if, if I didn't care what was going on in your life, then there, there, would be, there would be absolutely no importance to me exercising any kind of discipline in your life. I would just ignore you and let you go on and do whatever you want to do. I care about you and therefore I bring discipline. Therefore, through spiritual authority, I bring harsh words at times. Uh, I, I'm coming and, and disciplining you and bringing harsh conditions at times to let you know I love you. I care about you. And then he offers the solution in that he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. And they will eat with me. When you read this passage, you cannot read it without just really in the light of the Holy Spirit illuminating it to us. I mean, we can read just the letters on the page. But when we read this with a sense of allowing God to speak life into it for us, you can't read this passage without understanding that God craves fellowship with you as an individual. God craves and desires fellowship. Here I am. I'm standing at your door. I'm knocking at your door. These past few weeks, uh, several weeks and leading up to uh, and past really the reading of this, uh, I've, I've had a lot of kind of homesickness for Zach. I've been thinking about him. Unfortunately, you know, we are able to kind of communicate on the phone and see each other in person. But there's just some things that I think have happened in the course of these weeks that reminded me. And so I've just, I've, 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 he's been on my mind. I've thought about him. I've missed him. And as I was thinking about that, I thought about how Jesus misses us. And there isn't FaceTime. And there isn't us. We, we leave him on hold. He's hanging there. And how he wants to spend time with us. How he longs to have an individual personal relationship with you. Yes, he loves the corporate church, the corporate world. Jesus loves the world. He gave his only begotten son for the world. But he loves you. He knows you personally and intimately. And he loves you. And as I would think of my son and think of moments that we had spent together and just wanting to kind of hang out and be near where he is. How God wants that for us. 
How He wants to just sit with us and speak to us and love on us. And it's a, it's a difficult picture to look at at the, the ending of this last letter. I, I, I often wish that this was not the last letter to the churches. Dispensationalists uh, believe that you're looking at seven dispensations, that these are church ages and that we have now entered into the Laodicean age. I'm not a dispensationalist, but it's upsetting to me that this is the last letter because it's Jesus standing on the outside of the church, not on the inside. It's Jesus trying to get into a place that is dedicated to his name, his mission, his purpose, his glory, and worship. And meanwhile, inside the church, they're singing songs about Jesus. They watch videos about Jesus. They tell stories about Jesus. They preach sermons and have talks about Jesus and how wonderful Jesus is. Inside the church, they say amen, but they don't know the amen. Yeah. Laodicea had become apathetic in their love for Christ. They were allowing the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things to come and to choke it out of their life, making it unfruitful. They were blind to all of it saying they were rich and had everything they needed. They couldn't see their spiritual poverty because they refused to look inside. They only wanted to look outside. See our beautiful building. See all the things that are taking place. See our chairs, our classrooms, our PA systems, our high-tech equipment. See all of this? We're wealthy. We're rich. And he says, you haven't looked inside, you're in spiritual poverty. And the cure for spiritual blindness begins with an honest appraisal. And he calls us to true repentance. And I believe one of the reasons why that churches can get this way, and this can happen in the life of individuals who go to church and participate in church, and church can then become more of a, an event than us becoming the church, right? Because... The church was never intended to be a building and a place, an event that happens you know, all the time at a certain hour. The church was always intended to be a body of Christ who comes together, do the work of Jesus Christ. But I believe the reason why that this can happen is that we forget the why. The why. Why are we coming together? I recall a time when... Uh, I was going, going through a season kind of of dryness and happened to be, in, when I was in youth ministry, towards the last years, seventh or eighth year that I was a youth pastor, we spent eight and a half years early in our ministry as a youth pastor. And, uh, you know, I was at a camp and had a bunch of kids and, you know, I was just, I just wasn't feeling it for that particular moment when service was happening and, in, you know, this, this, the altar call started and some of my kids started going forward. And as, as they're going forward, I'm, I'm rehearsing in my mind the story of their life. And I said, well, there's, there goes the kid who we met, you know, a year ago that was, a, you know, a drug addicted. And the parents started coming to church and God's changed their life. And 
another kid started going forward. That's, ah, man, Sarah, you know, her mom and dad just split up and, you know, she's been grieving this, it's hard, you know. Another kid would get up and start walking towards the front and answer an altar call and like, oh man, you know, the stuff that they're going through in their household, their family doesn't even believe in God. And every, every time they come to youth group, they're mocked and made fun of. And all of a sudden God just started crushing the inside of me. I started realizing this is why I do what I do. Because if I wasn't standing in that lonely place in central Phoenix that doesn't have a lot of bright lights and, and attention, if I wasn't standing there in the darkness to meet those kids as they come in, who would be standing there for them? What would their lives look like? There goes Sherry. She was a part of a witch's coven, one of the largest ones in Phoenix. God brought her out, marvelously saved her. And she's brought three other members from that coven into the youth group. This is the why. Can I take a moment to share with you a video? This is the why, and then I want to come back and talk to you. 